We thank you that we can praise your name now and always because of what Christ has done for us. As we turn our attention to your word now, we ask that you would guide us in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Pastor Paul is away today. He's preaching at Flamborough Baptist, and we're thankful that we're a church that allows our staff to do that. To, we, we're blessed with multiple staffs over the summer. Pastor Marcio, Pastor Derek, myself, uh, Pastor Paul have been in a variety of churches around, uh, preaching and filling in their pulpits so that their pastors are able to have uh, some time off. This Sunday, we close off the book of Acts. We'll finish off with the whole chapter of Acts 28. Uh, and then next Sunday, we're going to gather for a prayer service. So as we gather, we're actually going to gather to pray. And so as we gather, we'll spend times both individually uh, and in groups praying and just asking God to walk with us. It's something we do. We're going to just take several portions of Acts and use them as our guide uh, through the prayer service next week. When are you angry at the world around you? When are you just infuriated with what's going on around you? Yesterday, we were driving back from the Peach Festival, and Jewel and Ivy were with us. It was just the four of us yesterday. And as we were driving back from the Peach Festival, they got into, like, what's the biggest country in the world, and how many countries are there, and kind of who are the top five countries. And I knew the top five. I couldn't do beyond that from my head. So Amy was Googling it. And when they learned that Russia was the biggest country, they were like, what? Like, then why do they want more? Like, why is Russia invading another country? Like, what's going on here if they're already the biggest What's happening? And they were just immediately incited by this whole idea that Russia's already big. Why does Russia want more? What's going on here? Maybe you've been infuriated this week because you heard about the four stabbings in Hamilton. I mean, the man that was stabbing people randomly has been caught and now incarcerated. But maybe you go like, what? And, and maybe it made you feel unsafe as you're going on. What if I'm next? I mean, these are random, right? Just, just happening. What if, what if they come after me next? What if... I'm minding my own business, it's happened to me. Or they hit and run in Waterdown recently, where older man killed, right? No one, no one claims any type of responsibility, just gone. And maybe those kinds of things happen, and you go, this is wrong. Like, there's just something wrong with our world. Maybe it's when somebody hurts you, maybe it's when somebody causes you pain, maybe it's when somebody lies about you or gossips about you in that moment, you're like, ah, this is just an awful place. Or maybe it's your own life. Maybe you realize the own sin that you battle with. Maybe for you it's greed. And, and you long to be generous with the money that God's given you. You long to honor him with it. And yet there's this all, always this battle of you wanting more and buying more and purchasing more and owning more. and whew. Or, or maybe for you in, in your heart, it's pride. And you thinking of yourself as better than others instead of considering them better than yourself. Or maybe for you, it's gossip or lying. Or maybe it's a struggle with pornography. And, and every time you're there searching the net, looking at porn, you're like, why am I doing this again? And you're even angry at your own sin. In those moments, there should be a longing for the kingdom of God to come. In those moments when we're angry about the sin of the world around us or our own sin, it should drive us to your kingdom come, your will be done. Amen? That's what it should drive us to. That all this wrong that we're experiencing, all of this sin that we find ourselves combating and around us should drive us to the kingdom of God coming. 
So if you have your Bibles, Acts 28, beginning at verse 1, I will stutter step through the passage, but I'll read the first 10 verses to start. Remember, Paul has just experienced a great shipwreck on the way to Rome. Paul, Pastor Paul, not the Apostle Paul. Pastor Paul preached that last week, did a great job on that. Um, And now they've seen a shore, and on planks, and those that could swim are making their way to shore. Verse 1, once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire. They welcomed us all because it was raining. It was cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood as he put it on the fire. A viper uh, driven out by the heat fastened itself onto his hand. When the islanders saw that the snake was hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. For though he escaped the sea, the goddess of justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and he suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up suddenly or fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he must be a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home. He showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick of the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with supplies we needed. This is the word of the Lord. Paul ends up on this island, the island of Malta. A snake fastens itself to his hand as they're building a fire to warm themselves because they're cold and they want to dry off. He shakes the snake from his hand, and he's like, well... This guy must be evil, complete evil. Because to escape the shipwreck, having been a prisoner, and now to have a snake fasten itself to his hand, that's just simply the judgment of our God, right? So they're talking about their goddess, their God, quote-unquote God of Malta, and they're seeing it as judgment. And nothing happens to Paul, and so they decide maybe he's a God. That's ironic. There is this estate... Right? They're welcomed in. The gentleman's father is quite ill. Paul heals him, and then all kinds of those that are around are healed by Paul. You see, one of the things that God's kingdom coming does is it reverses the curse. Our sin has caused the curse. Because we've sinned, we are cursed and cursed by God. Our sin creates death relationally, between God and us, between us and each other. Spiritually, we're no longer able to respond to God except by his graciousness. Emotionally or psychologically, we are now broken. We see that even through the pandemic, through all of the mental health illness that has emerged. And so in every way, right, relationally, uh, spiritually, emotionally, or psychologically, and lastly, of course, physically, we die. We die. And so death comes not just in physical death, not just in the fact that I will one day pass away, but in every way. You, you know that, right? You gossip about someone or you lie about someone and you're caught, and what does that do to your relationship with them? It breaks it. It breaks it. And so all of a sudden in that, as you're trying to understand what's next you realize that the wage of sin is always death. And so because of that, we're cursed in that. 
The serpent was cursed, man was cursed, woman was cursed, land was cursed. The curse is pervasive. And when Christ came, he began to undo the curse. He began to cast demons out. He began to heal the sick. He began to teach away so people were amazed and astounded. And after he left, he granted this same authority to his apostles, then through his apostles, to us. And so what you have here is the beginning of the undoing of the curse. The healing of sickness that will never happen in glory. Is that not good news? I mean, when we pray your kingdom come, there'll be no sickness in that kingdom. When we pass from this plane to the next, you'll never hear someone has cancer. No one will ever have a stroke. You'll never hear of heart attack. Is that not great news? There'll be no poisonous vipers, or if they do, they can bite you and they'll have no effect. I don't know which is true. I don't think they'll bite you, but the lion will lie beside the lamb. But we long for his kingdom to come. And the apostles begin to show us what it looks like to undo the curse. Verse 11. So after three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. There we set sail to Regim. And the next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Patoli. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius, and there the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself, and a soldier was there to guard him. So Paul's now under house arrest, living on his own. People can come and go as he pleases. Many of the epistles are written during this time. We call them the, the, the prison epistles. Um, three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem, handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted uh, to release me because I am not guilty of the crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked you, I've asked to see you and to talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with these chains. They replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. So Paul gathers the Jewish people, the very people that want him tried and imprisoned. He gathers them there now in Rome, and he wants to be able to speak to them. He wants to be able to explain to them. He says, I'm Jewish, right? But I want to talk to you about the hope of Israel, for which I'm bound in chains. I want to explain to you what's going on. Now, this is, this is courageous. I mean, this is like Paul after he's been beaten a few chapters ago. And I looked at chapter 22, and he's being dragged away. They were worried that they were the Romans, when they grabbed him from the Jews, that Paul was being beaten to death. And as he's being dragged away, he stops on the steps and says, can I just address the crowd? He would have been bleeding, injured, bruised, and they're dragging him to safety. And he's like, can I just have a moment? Paul's now in jail because of this, and the Jewish leaders, and in his courage, right, after, through various chapters of Acts, 
having been beaten, having been stoned, having been chased out of towns, having been beaten nearly to death, now having been shipwrecked, Paul says, hey, there's a new audience here in Rome. There's a whole group of Jewish leaders who haven't heard about the hope in Christ. That is the hope for Israel. Would you come so I can tell you? Is that how you engage with our world? When you hear me even earlier in the service talk about how our world thinks we're anti-academic for believing God exists. They talk about the Bible being unethical. They, they talk about how what we believe about whatever you want to talk about, gender, sexuality, you get a whole number of things. How it's not just archaic anymore, it's listed and labeled now as dangerous. When you're engaged in those conversations, are you willing to re-engage? Or do you just shrink right back? Do you just shut your mouth? Do you just stop talking? Are you willing to ask God for wisdom and allow his spirit to work through you so that as you engage in those conversations with people around you, you can be a witness to them? I mean, here's Paul. He's already been beaten multiple times in Acts. Been stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked, chased out of multiple towns. He's now in jail. He doesn't have to do anything under guard. But he says, you bring all the Jewish leaders here. I want to tell them about the hope of Israel. Why does he do this? Because he, who was persecuting the church, was met by the risen Savior on a road to Damascus, and God transformed his life. And he now, for the first time, has what? And that changed everything. God granted him hope on that road to Damascus. A hope he never had before. What was he hoping in before? He was hoping in the law. He was hoping in himself. He was hoping in his morality. Now he realized that all of his hope was to be pinned on Jesus. If you don't believe that, read Galatians, read Romans, read Ephesians. As he writes, as you listen to his writings, as, as you read what Paul has said, the number of things he talks about for the accomplished work of Christ and his shed blood on our behalf Paul's life changed drastically in this one way. He now had hope. And as he looked through the whole Old Testament, he could see that every Messianic promise was fulfilled in Christ. All of the Old Testament was pointing to him. And he gathers the leaders of Israel and says, just one more time. I want to tell you about this hope for Israel. It's found in Jesus. It's found in him. And he simply lives out the gospel in front of them. Verse 23, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening. Do you hear that? A full day. He begins to talk to them morning. He goes the full day explaining to them about the kingdom of God, the law of Moses from the prophets. And the law of Moses, he tries to persuade them about Jesus. Because who's the centerpiece of the kingdom of God? Christ himself. So Paul spends this entire day showing them from the law and the prophets that everything that the law and the prophets talk about is fulfilled completely in Christ. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. So they disagreed among themselves. They began to uh, leave after Paul had made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, 
Go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving. For the people's hearts have become callous. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. He quotes from Isaiah 6, from Isaiah's charge, where God commissions Isaiah and gives him this incredibly hard ministry. Isaiah, you're going to go out, you're going to preach for a lifetime. And it's not going to get any better. In fact, it's going to get worse. Now, this is an important passage of Scripture. Jesus quotes it multiple times. It's now quoted here by Paul. So what's he saying? It shows you that only God saves. Only God saves. Salvation is simply a gift from him. So I say this to people all the time. If God's Spirit's at work in your life and you're not a believer, do not quench or grieve his Spirit. Do not blaspheme. I believe actually that's the work of a non-believer uh, or what a non-believer does when, when they're rejecting the work of the Spirit. Believers grieve or quench the Spirit. Non-believers will blaspheme the Spirit. That's a continual rejection of the work of the Spirit in their lives. God's Spirit is at work in you to draw you to salvation, to bring to that point in place. But he says this, they're going to have ears, but they won't hear. They're going to have eyes, but they won't see. And so he says, now I know that this now needs to go to the Gentiles. Well, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own house, and he welcomed all who came to him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God, and he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Two things. One, note Luke is here. You have the we again in chapter 28. So you know Luke is a traveling companion with Paul, starts about Acts 15. So Luke's here present. He's part of the shipwreck. You see the we's there. Luke is here. Why doesn't Luke tell us what happens to Paul? Why, why don't we have a chapter 29 that says, and here's what happened to Paul? Why does it end here? I'd like to suggest this. Because Paul tells us in Philippians why. To live in Christ and to die is gain. It actually doesn't matter. If I live, I'll go on for you. He says to the Philippians, if I die, I'm going to go be with Jesus. It, it doesn't matter. Paul says, it doesn't matter what happens to me. If, 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 I, if I live, it's for Jesus. If I die, I'll be with Jesus. So to live is Christ, to die is gain. So people like me who are like, hey, I'd like to know what happened. I'll have to wait till I see him. So Paul, what happened? Like, Paul, what went on? I'd, I'd love to know. And maybe he'll be able to share with us what went on, what, what occurred there. But, but I want you to note this, right? In verse 23, he's explaining the kingdom of God. He's talking from the law and the prophets, trying to persuade them about Jesus then it divides them. This shouldn't surprise us. The gospel is a dividing gospel. Don't be surprised when some people say, man, I can't accept this. I mean, for some people, because they don't want what it includes. They don't want that there's an authority figure above them, God. They don't want that he's going to call the shots that he's going to tell you to do. For other people, because they think it's too easy. What do you mean? I just have to ask for forgiveness. That just doesn't what do you mean? And so they're like, no, I don't want anything to do with this. Or they're like, did he really exist? Was he really the Messiah? How can we know he says who he says he was? And so you should not be surprised as you witness to neighbors, to friends, to family, to people around you, that this is going to be a dividing gospel. That there are times even when God will open up doors for you to be able to share the gospel with someone, and you'll find that they fully reject it. He opened the door. God allowed you the opportunity to speak and to share, but they want nothing to do with it.
But even after that happens, all who came to him, which is who? Jew and Gentile in Rome, in verse 28, all who came to see him while Paul was there, notice, in his own rented house. So we have that. Not under guard, likely, at this point in time. The whole two years Paul stayed there in his own rented house, he welcomed all who came to him. And he proclaimed what? The kingdom of God. He taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So what is this kingdom? Well, Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom when you look at the Beatitudes. Now, the kingdom of God is full of meekness and mercy and justice. It's full of comfort and purity and righteousness and peace. And we've seen the kingdom of God break in all through Acts. I'm going to give six examples quick. First is this. You see the community of God breaking in in Acts as it builds community. As it builds community. In Acts chapter 2, after God saves 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost, God grips 3,000 lives and they're baptized. They begin to form these communities. They gather around the apostles' teaching, around fellowship, around the breaking of bread, and around prayer. They have this powerful witness as the Lord adds to their number daily those that are being saved. And they share that which they have with each other. So as they're, as they're saved, they realize, man, we're not many in number. I mean, 3,000 is a lot, but compared to the population, it's not. And they realize they need each other. And so all of a sudden, as God saves them and grabs a hold of their lives, they begin to interact with each other by the Spirit. Their guiding instrument is what? The apostles' teaching. And as the Word of God guides them, they pray, they celebrate communion, they fellowship, they take what they have and they share it with others. They, they gather in community. We've been doing that on Tuesday nights for prayer meeting. If you haven't been, I encourage you to come this Tuesday. It's a, the last of the series we're doing. Um, it's been a great time. Some weeks there's just been over 30 of us gathering to pray, praying through different subjects and, and for different groups over the summer. And we've just been gathering, crying out to God and praying. We sing, we pray. It's one of the things God's church should be doing, a praying church, praying for each other, praying for our ministries, praying for the lost, praying for people around us. We pray. In the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear us talk about community groups that will gather again and groups that will gather in homes of eight or ten people that will study the word and pray together and be accountable to each other. And we encourage everyone in our church who comes to be a part of a community group like that, to gather with each other. We need fellowship. I, mean, I heard R.C. Sproul say this years ago, right? You have a burning group of coals, fired and, and, and flamed. You take one of those coals and you place it five feet away. If there's 40 coals in the pile and one over here, which of the coals are going to last the longest? The 40 together, not the one over here. I remember that illustration. I was a kid. I was probably 16 when I heard that. I've never forgotten it. So what happens? We need each other. God has wired us for this. People will tell me all the time. I was in a conversation with someone a couple weeks ago who says, well, I don't need church. I'm like, what? He said, no, no, no. I said, now there, there is some truth that you are saved by Christ, but Everywhere from the book of Acts through the Revelation is about what? The church. The church. It's about how we interact with each other. Christ's bride. His body. Aren't those powerful images? We are the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. That is his church. And he grants us community. And you have more in common with a believer. You have more in common with a believer than anyone you play hockey with than anyone you work with, than anyone you hobby with. Do you believe that? 
Some of my closest friends I have very little in common with when it comes to things we are naturally inclined uh, to, to spend our time doing, except for Jesus, except for Jesus. They love sports. They watch sports. They, they're like, Dwayne, have you ever heard of them? Like, no clue, like zero clue. Like, have, like they want to talk about some sport? They have no clue. Like, I, I hosted for years Super Bowl parties, and on the day of the Super Bowl, I would Google who was playing, right? Because I didn't mind hosting. I didn't mind having food. I had no clue who was playing. And my son, when he got old enough, was like, this is actually embarrassing, Dad. Because he loves sports. He's like, how is it that you're hosting this and you have no clue what's going on? I'm like, does it matter? It's, I'm here for the fellowship. Now, for some people, that's not always good because the game's going on. I'm like, how's your spiritual walk going? Like, listen, after the game, if we could, right? If you're here to watch a game, watch a game and talk about Jesus after or before. Or, I said, well, how about halftime? No, 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 there's a show. Anyway, we build community. We build community with each other. We, we do so intentionally, pouring into each other's lives. Secondly, their community is empowered by the Spirit. We saw that in Acts 2 when God's Spirit fell. You see that in Acts 13 when the Spirit calls out, probably likely through a prophet, to set apart Barnabas and Saul, directing them then later on in the chapter. And where is God's Spirit right now? I mean, this is incredible, isn't it? You look at the Old Testament, there was the tabernacle where God's presence dwelt. Then the temple where God's presence dwelt. Then who was the temple? You destroy this temple, in three days I will be rebuilt. Jesus was the temple. And then he says when he leaves, I'm going to grant you my spirit. My spirit will be in you. If you're a believer today, God's spirit is in you. And in Corinthians it says, we are the temple. God's spirit, if you're a believer today, is housed in you. He is your counselor and guide. Is that not great news? You're never alone. You're never alone. He's always there with you. In fact, I say this to people all the time. When I, when I go to, with Christian groups, this is pre-pandemic, to dialogue or debate at a university campus about the existence of God. Sometimes pre, in my conversation with the Christian group that's asked me to come and debate with a professor or something, I'll say, uh, they'll say, what's the greatest apologetic you think for the existence of God? I said, well, I won't use it that night. They say, what? I said, no, it won't make sense to them. I said, but the greatest apologetic uh, for me, uh, for the Christian walk, or the Christian life, is the fact that God's Spirit is in me. I, I know He's there. I know He's in me. It won't make sense to Him, but I know He's there. Um, and so I, uh, I, I know that that is the greatest apologetic of the Christian walk, that God's Spirit is actually in me. He's actually there. Thirdly, there are communities grounded by the Word. You saw that in Acts 2, where they followed the apostles' teaching. And you see it in Acts 15 with the calling of the Jerusalem Council. We look through Acts, Acts 15. This book is, is, is what is to guide us. We live in a day, I mean, I did two weeks on Acts 15. We live in a day where people want our culture to guide us, where people want the, the, the world to guide us, where people want whatever new ideology or philosophy out there to guide us. God says right here, by my spirit, this is what's to guide you. This book, this is his word. Is that not good news? He's granted us a book, it's his word. And as his kingdom breaks in, it breaks in by creating community. It breaks in by empowering us by the spirit. It breaks in by grounding us in the word. It breaks in by granting us to be communities of compassion and justice. You see this in Acts 4, 34, where he says, this goes back, right? A year ago into Acts, there's no needy people among them. 
that God had so worked in people's lives that they took some of what they had, they brought it to the apostles' feet as they sold property or lands and goods because they saw none of their money is theirs. They saw it all of the Lord's. And they took some of what they had and they blessed people that had less with it. And that's what we tried to do here in this building. Right? $2.2 million of the housing project is from us and donors around us, partners, family and friends that have contributed. Because we believed that housing people was important, that taking some of what we had and, and some of the people we've housed are believers that we love and know and care for, who even worship with us and gather with us. Why? Because this isn't some type of socialism where there's an equalization of wealth, but it is that everyone has a fair share. It's not that everyone has equal share, but everyone has fair share. What does he say? There's no needy among them. No one should ever come and be part of our congregation and experience need, ever, ever. There'll be no needy in the kingdom of God. Is that not good news? There'll be no needy in the new heaven and the new earth. And so when I see need around me, I'm like, oh, your kingdom come. When I see people that are lonely and needing fellowship, oh, your kingdom come. When I even myself, I'm not relying on the spirit the way I should, oh, your kingdom come. When I see people not relying on the word the way they should, not trusting it the way they should, oh, your kingdom come. And we've created, God creates communities of compassion and justice. We do that through some of our ministries, like the hub and coffee's on. Blessing people, walking alongside of them, caring for them. His kingdom breaks in by creating diverse communities of grace. The gospel goes to the Gentiles, not just for the Jews, promised for the Jews, but then to the Gentiles. And then from the Gentiles, you see it into the whole world. You remember the interaction with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch where the gospel goes to Africa. First person from that continent saved, this Ethiopian eunuch who ends up coming to the temple to worship God, isn't allowed in because he's a eunuch, is leaving with part of the scroll of Isaiah or all the scroll of Isaiah. I don't know how much he would have gotten there and purchased from the temple. He's reading it as Philip runs alongside of him. He says, how can I understand what this means? Philip says, you understand what it means. How can I understand this unless someone explains it to me? Philip explains it to him, and the man, it had to be a long conversation because they got to baptism, and the man says, what should stop me from being baptized? Philip says, nothing. He takes him down and he dunks him. And you have here God's kingdom that's breaking in. I mean, our world talks about how diverse it wants to be. Our world talks about how welcoming it wants to be. And sadly, this hasn't always been true of the church. Okay, I'm going to do something here. I'm sorry. I'm trying not to do it. My sandal broke, and it's actually broken. And so I'm trying to keep it on, and it's not working. So I'm done with my flip-flop. And uh, I told my wife, these will last one more year. I was wrong. They're gone right now. So... All right, sorry, I am barefoot, but I, I can't, I'm trying to, and it's not working. Hold it with my toe, and then I thought I'll just stand still, and I, I can't do it. So, diverse communities of grace. The, the world talks about welcoming. The world talks about people coming from every language and custom and culture and tribe, but they can't do it. They want everything to be some type of melting pot. God celebrates that he is the one who has created people across this globe. Every person on this globe is made in the image, his image and likeness, marred by sin. I talked about that earlier. And God is saving people from every language and custom and culture and tribe, from every socioeconomic background. And at the foot of the cross, we all come equally. Is that not good news? None of us brings anything to him. He brings all of it to us. 
I have nothing to offer him. I simply need his grace. And as we took a, take, looked over, over the book of Acts at the numbers of people that God is saving in Asia, in South America, in China, China is Asia, and in, uh, in Africa, that's where I meant to go next, you could see powerfully the work in the hand of God. In fact, I think it's one of the greatest apologetics for the Christian faith is the fact that I've said this so many times through Acts, but just to say it one more time, that, that in any other religion that you study anywhere in the world, they never move far, ever, except by migration from the center of origin. The greatest populace of that religion is always near its center of origin, except in one religion, Christianity. As you study Christianity, you see that it starts in the Middle East. It moves its way around the world because Christ is on the move, saving people from every language and custom and culture and tribe. And so then as we gather with our Burmese friends, our Karen friends from Burma, as we gather with Brazilians in our church, because we have both those congregations meeting here, we celebrate that God is at work in our midst. I mean, in the last year and a half through COVID, where so many of the young people in the Karen congregation had walked away from the Lord, and we've now seen over a dozen of them baptized, and 18 of them come back to faith in Christ more than being baptized this fall. I'm like, Lord, would you do that again, and would you even double it? Lord, would you save? And as they're engaged with our children's ministry and our youth ministry and our young adults ministry, and we're walking alongside them, one of the things I've just tried to teach them over and over again with some of the, the young Karen people, especially when they've said to me, Dwayne, we can't be in leadership. I'm like, why? And they say, we're just Karen. I'm like, you're not just Karen. You are my brother or sister in Christ. God has saved you. And maybe you only went to a grade seven education in a refugee camp, but that doesn't mean you can't grow exponentially in your faith and knowledge of him. The kingdom of God is the great equalizer, saved by Christ. Glorious good news. I, uh, someone incredibly well-educated was, uh, he met my dad and father recently. This guy's got a PhD working on more doctorates, and was in this great conversation with my dad and brother. And my brother, in true form, made fun of me because this guy knows me quite well. And he's like, man, the things I learned about you. My brother and I are really good friends. I mean, we were talking yesterday, but he does love to poke fun at his older brother. Um, and, uh, and in this conversation I was having with this person, he said, uh, what was it like growing up in that home? And I said, well, I said, my, my dad's a tradesman, right? He's got two trades and a welding certificate. And I said, but he loves God deeply. And he's one of the wisest men I know. Never went past grade 12, but one of the wisest men I know. Because at the foot of the cross, it doesn't matter if you have a PhD in Bible, or you've just been a faithful servant of God who's been listening to the word and reading it all of your life, does it? He is God. And so the kingdom is diverse. That's why there's no room, no room for racism in God's kingdom. And lastly, there are communities who rely on God's strength and suffering. We saw that with Peter, John, Stephen, who's stoned to death, James, who's martyred, Paul, the apostle. These communities rely on God's strength and suffering. They turn to him, they look to him, as they look to his kingdom, will be, there'll be no more suffering. So I go back to the end of the book of Acts, and Andrew, you guys can come up. 
For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. He taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. God's kingdom is coming. Is that not good news? Paul taught about the kingdom of God. Paul taught about a God of justice, taught about a God of grace, taught about Christ and how he fulfills the law completely in that everything about the law that was promised is fulfilled in him and he never ever broke the law. Paul just kept talking about it. And as anyone came in from any place in the world, as all roads led to Rome in that day, because it says they all came. But that doesn't mean all of Rome came. But in those two years, person after person and group after group would have come and seen the apostle Paul. And as that occurred, Paul just continued to declare the goodness of God and his grace as people were being drawn to the Savior. He would have talked about the goodness of the kingdom of God where there is no more suffering, the goodness of the kingdom of God in all of its diversity, the goodness of the kingdom of God. I mean, here we celebrate the Lord's presence in communion. There we will experience his presence in its fullness for all of eternity. Is that not great news? We're relying on the Spirit now in communion fellowship, but knowing that we will enjoy an even greater fellowship in glory in glory with this triune God, knowing that we battle with sin now with, with some success because of what Christ has done for us, but knowing that we will one day be in a place where we won't even be tempted. Is that not great news? And I can't even imagine being somewhere where I won't be tempted, where it will never happen again, but that will be glory. And can I tell you what our world desperately needs? People who proclaim the kingdom of God, because it's what they're looking for, and who point them to Jesus, who's ushered in his kingdom. Would you pray with me? We're thankful, God, for your grace in our lives, and we're thankful, Lord Jesus, that you have been pleased to come. And like you showed us as we learn in the word about prayer, we do pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we long for your kingdom to come and we long for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we long for the day, Jesus, when you will return and when your kingdom will be ushered in in its fullness. So come, Lord Jesus, come. And until that day, may we be a people who proclaim your kingdom to this world around us, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.